There's a ritual that happens up and down the country. On nearly every sports ground or playfield you can find. The ritual usually involves two captains, usually the really able and fit people, picking a team for a sport they're about to play. The ritual usually starts with the inevitable and usual suspects being picked first. And as the time went on, you got down to the people you didn't really want in your team. The one that really neither team wants. It's that humiliation when you are stood there, or anyone, but you know, it, could, it was me. <laughs> Two people left, and the other one's picked. You're the reject. You're the one that basically no one wants, but you're there to make up the numbers. You see, the reason is that people look at what's on the outside, what's in front of them to make a decision. Can they throw well? Do they look like they could run well with a ball? Do they look as if they'd be agile and good ability? Would they look good in my team? And for those who have been involved in business, employing someone, you know that sometimes you look at a person's CV. They look amazing. They look like they fill every single box you possibly could want. And then when you meet them in person, you wonder how this CV and this person were actually the same because they seem so far apart. I wanted, well, I was tempted to show a YouTube clip today, but it was slightly long. It's of, and it's got football involved, which I know is not everybody's cup of tea. But it's of a man called Sean Garnier, who probably many people won't know. He is actually one of the world's best freestyler football, so he does all these tricks and everything like that. And there's a YouTube clip of him turning up, it's a bit of a publicity stunt, I think, but turning up to this football tournament and they've done him up as an old man. And he walks on the pitch and no one wants to pass the ball to him because they just think he doesn't look like he's able to do anything. And as time goes on, well, he just leaves them for dead, basically, and just humiliates them. Yes, we could say he put a mask on, but sometimes we put masks on to hide who we are and what we're really capable of. We play it down, or think that maybe our gifts are too good to be used in church, to be used in a church setting, a church meeting, or even a deacon's meeting. I've heard it before. People say, well, I'm used to dealing with multi-million pound companies. Why would I want to come to a deacon's meeting? Thankfully, we can put no masks in front of God, who knows us intimately. He knows if we're holding back or pretending to be something we're not, and he still loves us the same. But this is the point God is making to Samuel. What is Samuel looking for when he believes God is calling him to anoint a new king? Well, it's a direct replacement of Saul. He wants Saul Mark too. He wants him to look like Saul, to be strong, someone who looks intimidating. And we read that when Jesse brought out his first son, and I'm sure Jesse was stood there going, this is the one. This is the one. And Samuel sees him and goes, yes, this is the one. But God goes, no. You're looking at the outside. I'm looking at the heart. God knew the person he wanted was David. A shepherd boy. Let's not get into this idea that a shepherd boy is a little weakling. 
A shepherd boy had to fight off bears, had to scare away lions. He wasn't a weakling, but he was the guy out in the field. The musician, probably almost the dreamer, sat under a tree playing his instrument playing. But God knew his heart. It's not saying he was perfect, we will find out in the story, he did things wrong. But God knew his heart. Samuel was worried though. We see that because he brought a red heifer with him, a sacrifice, a purification ritual. And in one sense, it was a reason to get there in the first place. Because Samuel was worried because Saul was still on the throne. He was still king. And Samuel was sent to do this initiation. To anoint David as king. Commission him for the calling of God. While someone was still doing the job. And still believed that they were the right person for the job. It was at that moment of anointing. Of setting David apart. That David stepped or started to step into the role that God was preparing for him. It took time for that to come to fruition. And we'll explore that in the coming weeks. Like I said, this new series about David does literally start where we finished over a month ago. We looked at the call of Samuel and Samuel anointing Saul as king and Saul getting it wrong. And here we pick up the story of what happens after that, after we've had a short break looking at Mark's understanding of the power of God. And what we see clear is that God makes it so obvious that he sees the hearts of people. And this is the one he wants to be king. I think there's a lesson here for each one of us. Who is God setting apart amongst us? Maybe not to step into a role now, but who is God asking of us to anoint, to help mentor them, disciple them, and lead them into the place where God is calling them? How's the church where we're going to do this without people falling through the cracks? And that's the thing I want us to reflect on as a church today. I've got three points, and they are behind me. And I realised I didn't alter the spelling, spelling mistake that was in there. So how does this affect the way we share Christ with people? I apologise. But number one, as a church, we need to be listening to what God is calling. And we've done a lot about this recently. But listening to who God is calling for leading, for different roles within the church, different things within our youth. It's easy when it comes to election times for our leadership team to just think of the usual thing, people. Thanks, Paul, for correcting this funny stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that. Don't hear that as anything wrong. But sometimes we can almost take it as our default position and not ask God, who else around? Who else is there that could be doing something? Who is God preparing now to be a leader in this church in years to come? And then comes the question, then what as a church are we doing about it? How are we challenging ourselves and how we mentor, support and encourage these people? And I'm not just thinking of young people, because that's probably what you're thinking about, but also more mature people. How do we help them to realise the potential that they have? How do we help them to realise that God is looking at their heart, 
not looking at what they think they can do on the outside. You know, I knew someone years ago who was an incredibly able business person. They ran their own business. It was training other people. They were confident. They knew what they were doing. But the moment they stepped through the doors in a church, they lost all their ability. You got them to stand up. They fluffed everything. They didn't quite know what they were doing. They became a bumbling mess. I don't want that in this church. I want people to believe that they have a God-given gift and that the church is a place where they can be encouraged and nurtured. A place where, dare I say it, mistakes are allowed and we're forgiving. I know you're saying, Tim, well, we forgive you every week for the mistakes you make. <laughs> where everything's not quite polished. Friends, when we're up here on a Sunday, we're not seeking perfection. We're seeking God's will. There's a difference. If someone was to come up here and just make no sense at all, that's different. But we're seeking God's will. Where as a church are we looking at the heart of the person? And not necessarily outward experience. I remember a terrible experience in my childhood. Music class, when I was in primary school. And the teacher had brought a trumpet in. And everybody was given an opportunity to play the trumpet. And I'd been learning for probably a year, year and a half. And I got up and of course, being the cocky little thing I was, played a, played a song. She said, brilliant. She said, why don't you play in our assembly one day? Yeah, no problem. Well, I got up. And could I hit one single note in front of 200 children? No. It was diabolical. But thankfully the teacher stuck with me, we changed the piece very quickly and it worked. But at the end, even though I felt terrible, I was humiliated, the teacher said, well done. Because even though I struggled, even though it was difficult, I got there in the end. And maybe at the beginning of the day my heart wasn't in the right place, but it sure was by the time I got through that. Can we be a church that says well done to people? I understand this week that teachers have been told not to praise their students so much because uh, it creates substandard uh, work. Can we be countercultural? Can we say well done? Well done, good and faithful servant, because you have heard what God has called and you stepped up. Okay, it wasn't perfect. We need to work in areas, but well done. Number two, what about our fitness? You're thinking, what's he on about now? Well, here we go. We can spend, you can spend, I don't, a lot of money on the gym. A lot of time getting fit. Like I say, when I say we, I mean you. <laughs> but how much time do we spend exercising our faith and our relationship with God? See, if, I, if we were to sit here today and say, yes, it's true. We understand that song that will probably stick in your head for days to come. Man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. Well, if we spend that much time sorting, yes, our health and our physical appearance, how much time are we spending working our spiritual life and heart? How much time are we spent praying? How much time are we reading our Bible? How much time are we talking with others about the deep questions of faith and doing this continually, not just as a nice one-off? 
How often do we open our Bible and say, speak, Lord? How often do we sit in our car and pray instead of moaning about the traffic? How often do we exercise our belief and faith in God? You go to the gym, you swim, you do weights, run on the machine, and the more you do, I'm led to believe the easier it gets. I have done it before. But the more you do, you have to push yourselves. Now we had the bonfire last night with the youth down at Churchtown Farm. We did have permission before anyone gets worried. I don't know, does that, do many people know Churchtown Farm? You go down the lane at the end of Weird Road and there's a quite a steep lane going down to the beach. Well, I had to do that four times backing up yesterday. And down once, and I was so out of breath after the first time. But as I was doing it more and more, my body started to get a bit more used to it. When I did the fourth time and Mark said, I think we need to go down one more time, I did say no. I think <laughs> that's enough. But that sense in which the more we do something, the easier it gets, the more we have to push ourselves. Friends, this is about a, a holistic and all-encompassing fitness. It is important that the body and a health are in good shape, and yes, I need to take note of that. But it's also important that our spiritual life is exercised, that we are doing things about it. God can see. So number three, how does it affect the way we share Christ with people? I think it does. Because each person you see here today is David. If you were to look around, I'm not going to ask you to say hello David to everybody. But you are all Davids. Because you might look at someone in this church, and I'm sure this is not all of us, and say, well surely, you know, what could they do? sure we don't think that but it'd be easy to do that sometimes oh, you know what can they do they're busy they're doing this they they can't do that they're not that good in that area but God looks at them and says I see your heart I want to call you to do something in the life of the church and no one might expect it but this is what my will is do you remember years ago that national lottery advert the big finger in the sky is to point on someone and say, it's you. Well, that's the case now, but it's not just for one person, it's for all of us. You know, today, later I'm off to a two-year-old's birthday party. I can't think of anything more exciting to be doing on a Sunday <coughs> afternoon. But God might be saying to me, when you're speaking to people, Tim, don't look at the outward appearance. Speak to them. What's on their heart? We all know people that say something and you know that behind their words is actually what they're really saying, is what's on their heart. You know, one thing that God challenged me on when I became a minister is that each person is a child of God. Now we can all say it, and it sounds nice, and for years I've said it, and it's very nice. But when someone's hard work, my previous church, when the drunk man used to come in, or when someone is nasty. Or when someone's not socially acceptable because they're a bit smelly or a bit unkept. Jesus says, I died for them. They are my child. So ask people what's on their heart. What do you think God is asking you to do? If you're really brave, ask one another over coffee today. 
What is God asking of you? Don't think that is about taking up new things. It might be about laying some things down. Don't think it's about trying to be everything to everybody. It might sometimes be admitting where we need help. But friends, if we don't ask the question of one another, of God, then how on earth are we ever going to know? What might God have in store for you? What is it as a church we need to do to encourage, to nurture, to make sure that no one sat in their pew seat thinking, I believe God is saying something to me, but I've got nowhere to, to work this out. Friends, there's a ritual that happens up and down the country. The ritual involves one captain. He looks to everyone and there, standing there and says, I choose you. The question is, what is our response? And are we ready and willing to leap into, step down maybe, to what God is calling? Amen.